This is the L2 Capital Podcast with hedge fund manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone. I'm here today with Bill Sheriff. Bill is the chairman of Ancor Energy, an exploration uranium company which owns assets in the US and only in the US. Just a full disclosure before we start our conversation. I own shares of Ancor Energy and some accounts I manage also own shares of Ancor. Having said that, this should not be taken as an investment recommendation at all. Now, disclosure out of the way, let's do it. Bill, thank you for coming to this program. It's a pleasure to speak to you again. Thank you, Marcelo. Appreciate you having me. Could you please tell us a little bit about Encore? Because I believe it's not well known to many investors. And, uh, and the thing that grabbed my attention, apart from management's track record, is that management does not get paid in cash, right? Uh, that's correct. At this point, uh, we have not. For many years, we've gone into uh, more or less a holding and survival mode so as to preserve uh, shareholder equity and, and our assets. We've had a bit of a contrarian view to the sector that we're immersed in, in uranium, and that, uh, over the last uh, seven or eight years uh, that we've been in business, uh, there have been a number of false starts. Uh, you know, optimism uh, has raised its head several times since Fukushima, but uh, when Fukushima came out, we actually took the unprecedented step of sending out a chairman's letter uh, that I authored uh, telling people we thought that the market was uh, essentially dead for uranium for at least five years and perhaps a bit longer. And we weren't very popular for putting that out, but we were firmly uh, believing what we said. And to that end, we went into uh, you know a great deal of us taking steps of austerity so we uh, could preserve the assets. So it's been, a, been some time since anyone's received anything other than expenses. And um, we've been able to uh, continue to slowly increase our asset base by looking for distressed assets during that time period. So, you know, we're, we're now uh, having a much more constructive view on the price of uranium and the company is becoming a bit more active. But, uh, you know, due, due to our uh, low profile over the last uh, uh, seven or eight years, uh, you're, you're right. Not too many people know about us. So, Bill, uh, you were a geologist, but also worked as a broker and market maker. More impressive is that you founded a company called called Energy Metals a few years ago, which had a market cap of just over a million dollars and sold it a few years later for $1.5 billion. Could you please tell us what happened? Well, yeah, that uh, was certainly a heady times and, and uh, enjoyed the uh, experience and, and learned quite a lot about the sector. I spent most of my career in, in the gold sector, although I'd always had a keen interest in, in uranium. In uh, the mid-1980s, I had purchased the Union Carbide Worldwide Exploration Database. And for those not familiar, Union Carbide was one of the world's leaders in, in uranium production for years. Uh, when they uh, ceased operations, I was able to acquire their uh, enormous database over 600 filing cabinets, about 100 map files, uh, just chocked full of uh, data that they'd uh, built up over uh, a course of about 70 years of operation. So it was really a treasure chest. And uh, within that, that got me started on, on uranium. And I started, uh, there was a, a boom that turned to a blip in 1986. And uh, I'd gone out and staked a half a dozen uh, uranium resources, uh, proven resources in the U.S., or at least established resources is probably a better term. At least them out, but uh, you know, as, as we all know, that uh, little market move uh, didn't last long, and it, it went into hibernation for quite some time. And uh, got together with a gentleman, Paul Matisic, who was a co-founder of Energy Metals. And in 2004, 
Uh, we saw, I, I recognized what was, I thought, capitulation by the major uranium companies in in the United States. Uh, the price of uranium had just recently touched $7 and it had rallied all the way back to 9 or 10 But um, in, in late 2004, well, at the end of 2003, uh, rather, uh, the major companies, Cameco, uh, U.S. Energy, se- several others in the U.S. actually took the unprecedented step of, of writing off certain assets at the end of the year. Just a bit of a footnote, the U.S. Claim, claims that uh, mineral claims are valid through the end of August every year if you if you pay your fees or do your work at the time. The the calendar years doesn't affect the claims. It's actually the September 1st to August 31st timeframe. So in essence, for you to abandon your claims at the end of December, you've, you've really got to be very pessimistic and you've got to be looking for a tax write-off uh, because you've got another eight months of, of essentially free ownership on those mineral rights without having to do anything. And uh, it struck me as odd that things that had been in the Cameco annual report the year before as stated resources that the world's leader in uranium was touting as as assets they'd uh, essentially thrown away. And uh, I I just recognized that as as absolute capitulation. And so I uh, abandoned the gold fields of Nevada and, and spent the next seven or eight months and doing nothing but staking every uranium resource I could find. And uh, with the database I had and with uh, a lot of uh, late nights uh, searching aerial photos and whatnot, I was able to amass quite a quite a holding of, of previously known uh, and identified uranium deposits. Uh, sold those or vended those into a company uh, that uh, plan resources that later became Energy Metals, was renamed Energy Metals. Timing was everything. We hit the wave or the peak of, of, you know, being the first to market, the first to finance, the first to everything. Obviously enjoyed that meteoric rise in the uranium price um, out of the capitulation of, of late 03, you know, where we had, uh, I don't know, 27 or 28 months of, of straight up in the uranium going from essentially nothing to over $150 a pound. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of phenomenal price rise is usually reserved for high-tech companies, but uh, we, we certainly... No, we're, we're the beneficiaries of that. And, you know, I put together over the course of that uh, 30 months in the history of the U.S., the largest uh, single uh, company held uh, resource base that had ever been uh, assembled in uranium. And we had, uh, including historical resources, something near 300 million pounds. You know, fast forward that to, yeah, it was, it was a great, uh, great experience. And, uh, you know, I think we were working 20 hours a day and, you know, a lot younger then, but uh, it was, it was exciting times. And when the, when the, Time's come, it's time to work. So we'd had plenty of time waiting. Put together an awesome team. Uh, you know, I, I've always maintained that uranium is not a scarce commodity. After all, it's the eighth most common element in the world. And uh, it's it's not a matter of finding deposits as much as it's a matter of finding people. And that goes back to, uh, you know, our core foundation at uh, Encore is, uh, we, I think we've got, uh, you know, if, if not the best team, certainly the best team for a smaller company. Got a world-class group here uh, between our directors, our advisors, uh, and our um, consultants. We've uh, got all of the aspects of the fuel cycle covered. And I think and that's a good segue into, um, you know, the what I view as, as maybe the lacking of most uranium companies is the, the lack of an understanding of the fuel cycle. It's not just uranium. This goes back to our keying on the prices. You know, we've, I mentioned earlier, we've had a couple of head fakes in the price of uranium. People get bowled up over the last seven or eight years every time the price of uh, yellow cake could uh, bounce a little bit. Uh, but uh, one of the key indicators we watch was the slow price. The simple fact of the matter is that there are trade-offs. You don't have to buy yellow cake to run a nuclear power plant. Uh, there, there are multifaceted aspects of the fuel cycle, and unless you look at all of them as a whole, 
it's very difficult to um, really have any, you know, I don't know, uh, confidence in, in a price move in, in yellow cake itself. And so that's one of the things we, we look at. We've got experts in, uh, you know, the exploration uh, for uranium, the development, the production. Uh, you know, Dennis Stober, our CEO, is uh, holds patents on the uh, ISR, the process still, and was one of the co-founders of, of it. Uh, built the Inkai mine in, in Kazakhstan for Cameco and put together a number of ISR projects in the U.S. over his uh, career. From then, we've got marketing. You've got to market your yellow cake. Uh, Richard Cherry also with us is, uh, was with General. Atomics for years running that company and running the Cotter Company, actually, which was part of General Atomics. Now, he actually handled uh, some of our contract sales and negotiations for energy metals prior to selling out to Uranium One. You know, we've, we've got uh, Mark Paliza that's been involved with the ISR process from uh, the old Uranium Resources, now called Westwater. And also in the permitting end, he's, he's handled an awful lot of the nuclear regulatory uh, permitting aspects and is a key integral uh, part of our team in that regard, uh, as well as reclamation. And then reclamation, of course, leads into uh, Joe Harrington, who has uh, you know, won awards, uh, federal and state war awards for cleaning up all sorts of uh, mining-related uh, problems, including uh, uranium pit lake in, at the Sweetwater facility in Wyoming. So we've pretty much got it all from, you know, from discovery to uh, closing the mine after many years of profitable production. Uh, you know, in terms of a business plan, we've got key individuals that are exposed to and, and experts in each part of that. And, uh, you know, also the conversion and enrichment of the, of the fuel uh, prior to fabrication into fuel rods. So. I think it puts us in a really unique position. I also mentioned Doug Underhill, who's our chief geologist, who's spent many years working for the International Atomic Energy Association, a recognized world expert on, on the geology uranium deposits. Recently added uh, Gene Spearing, who's uh, a breccia pipe expert, also spent many years in uranium, but uh, really keyed in on uh, discovery and, and identification of uh, breccia pipes through remote sensing. Been quite successful. You know, rounding out uh, our, our board, we've got uh, Nate uh, Tewalt, who was founder of Standard Uranium, one of the early companies that we merged with at Energy Metals, and uh, who brought us the Hobson plant back at that time. Uh, and then uh, we've got uh, Bill Harris, who was our audit committee chairman, used to run uh, Fortune 500 companies. And we brought him along with Energy Metals uh, to uh, answer the Sarbanes-Oxley requirements of listing on the New York Stock Exchange, which we were fortunate enough to do prior to uh, being acquired by Uranium One. So it's really an all-star team, for, uh, especially for such a small company. I, I, like I say, I'd put us up against much larger companies and, and feel quite confident in our team. For sure. And uh, what are the advantages of being in the U.S.? Well, I think you know the key one, the, the most glaring advantage is the U.S. is by far and away the world's largest consumer of uranium. Consumer roughly a fifth of the world's uranium and um, produce virtually none. And uh, historically been a, a large producer, but uh, you know, due to the uh, a number of factors, commencing with Three Mile Island many years ago, you've seen the decline of, of the uranium production in the U.S. You know, it's, it's now probably at the lowest level it's been at in, in decades. We see that uh, as you know, a, a real opportunity. Uranium obviously is a sensitive commodity due to uh, some of the less peaceful uses for it. Uh, certain countries won't export it. Uh, it's certainly something that uh, being the world's largest consumer of, we think uh, that it's very important to have a domestic production base for such a sensitive uh, commodity. You know, as such, we were uh, supporters and still are supporters of the recent 232 petition that was launched by a couple of our um, competitor companies, uh, Energy Fuels and uh, UR Energy, uh, whereby they petitioned the U.S. government to uh, establish a certain percentage of, of uh, U.S. 
produced uranium in, in uh, can by, for consumption by the U.S. Uh, market. You know, we think that's uh, you know really key to maintaining a healthy industry, quite frankly, for for nuclear power as as well as uranium mining and uh, all the processing in between. Okay, it, it, it's good that you mentioned uh, Section two thirty two because it's a very important issue for investors. I know it's a difficult call to make, but do you have any expectations? You know, it's funny uh, as as much of an expert board as we have and, and group of people inside the company are are. Uh, if you were to poll us, I think you'd probably have no two people agree on on what percentage chance they would give it for success. Uh, I'm probably the most bearish on the board. I give it about 25% chance that we'll see meaningful, substantial action by the uh, president. It's sitting on his desk. Um, he has the choice to uh, do something with it shortly or, or not. It could linger. It could expire. You know, politically, it seems to be that it's a lot easier to do nothing than to do something. Although our, our current president seems to uh, not, not let that bother him and, and jumps right in. And, and, you know, I think that's the one thing we have going for us is, um, you know, Trump is uh, certainly indicated a certain level of protectionism and, and I think uh, a keen awareness of national security interest, which uranium clearly would fall under and, in fact, has been identified as a critical metal under his administration. So... Those are the things that are going good for it. The, the thing that's going bad for it, in my view, is the nuclear power industry. The consumers are, are adamantly against it. And, of course, they write a heck of a lot bigger check than the mining industry does to to the politicians. So, you know, we'll see. We also have guys that know more about it than I do that think there's, uh, you know, better than 90% chance something positive will come, uh, substantially positive. And I think, you know, for shareholders, it's keen to realize that for us, it doesn't really make much difference either way. You know, certainly if we get everything we're asking for and, you know, it's Christmas morning and 2.32 comes and, you know, it'll be an overnight windfall for the uh, domestic uranium industry. And, you know, we'll certainly be uh, happy to participate uh, in, in that outcome. And I think we're well positioned to participate in that outcome. However... If it doesn't, we're still quite constructive on uranium prices. If you look out another 18 months, 12 months, 24 months, pick your number, but sometime in the near term uh, on a worldwide basis. And, um, you know, we, we just think that price estimates that are out there are, are not the same ones that we enjoy internally. And we think there's been a certain amount of uh, underreporting or under acknowledgement of consumption and, and uh, perhaps an overestimation uh, of production. Uh, and we see that uh, the prices uh, we feel are going to improve you know, quite nicely, uh, you know, once you look out somewhere in that 18 to 24 month period. So if that were the case, you know, our company's cashed up. Uh, we think that if 232 does not see any help from the government, uh, I think there's going to be some assets uh, come available for sale in, in the U.S. market in particular for, for very, very reasonable prices. And so, you know, we stand ready and positioned to benefit from, from that in the event 232 does not provide some immediate relief. Uh, I think it'll be a real opportunity for the company to further expand its uh, already significant uranium resources and, and be even better positioned for the, the ultimate uh, global rise in prices that we see coming. Brilliant. So basically, there's no bad outcome. And what are your views on the uranium market at the moment? Well, here again, I, I know there are some of those that think we're on the doorstep of an immediate and substantial pressurize. I personally don't share that view, and I think our board's a little more um, united on that view at this point. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see it firm up a bit. Swoop prices have firmed and quit going down, which is a good good sign. So I, I think we've 
seeing the lows in the market. I don't think we're going to see any sort of significant price rise. I mean, it's going to take a move to 45, 50 bucks. In fact, let's just use 50. It's going to take a move to 50 bucks to get a whole lot of interest in new production. And uh, and some people have said 60. So I still think we're you know a couple of years away from that, maybe 18 months. Okay, so so let's say that the uranium prices do reach uh, 40 or 50 dollars a pound soon. What do you see happening in the markets? Do you think Chemical will restart MacArthur River? Are more projects going to be brought online, some in Kazakhstan or, or elsewhere? Well, you know, the, the Kazakhstan issue is a, an interesting one. And um, you know, we'll, see what, we'll see what happens over there. But they stopped putting as much money into well field development, which uh, inevitably in ISR uh, situations uh, will result in a decline in your production. How significant that is, we'll see. You know, it's not the most transparent situation in the world. But I think it's and perhaps they've seen their heyday. There'll still be a huge, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, if you will, they'll still be a huge producer. But, um, you know, I don't think we're going to see the time where they can just turn the taps on and, and increase substantially their production. You know, as to Cameco, I, I suspect if we saw 50, I'm pretty sure if we saw 50 bucks, they'd start, uh, you know, moving uh, MacArthur River back. But that's not a that's not a flip of the switch operation either. You know, you've got um, fabulous grades of Athabasca Basin, but you've also got the uh, equally fabulous uh, or, or of similar size problems of operating up there. And number one is, uh, uh, you know, an ocean of water underground that they've got to keep out of their workings. And it's it's not an inexpensive proposition. In fact, it's not inexpensive just to keep it on standby. You certainly just don't restart the operation. So I think they'd have to have some, in addition to a, seeing a price, I think they'd have to have some internal predictions of stability of a stable higher price before they made that move. You've got Ranger in Australia that's, you know, essentially on its last legs. It's, it's all but done. So I, I, I think there's several uh, significant uh, supply constraints I, I see either coming to the market or, or staying with the market. You know, even even if we get the 232 relief in the U.S., you can't just uh, you know say they go to you know, several million pounds a year on on a quota or even eight million pounds, which uh, you know be ideal. You just can't ramp up overnight to that. That's a, that's going to take several years to get there. I just don't see the market uh, being flooded by by supplies from you know, MacArthur or or Kazakhstan, and certainly I think Cameco will ease back into production and such that they wouldn't. Uh, crush the market. Interesting. And uh, you and your team talk a lot to people in the sector. Can you tell us the level of sentiment that utilities, producers and traders have at the moment? Again, I think it's a mixed bag. You know, you could probably put everybody in the industry into a small room, you know, an average, a small meeting room. It's a, it's a pretty small club. And, you know, the, the utility producers, of, of the electric producers, the utilities, our consumers have become quite... Uh, comfortable and I guess relaxed in their ability to, uh, you know, fill, fill quickly on spot. And so I think their, their inventory, uh, in terms of years ahead that, that they contract has, has tended to go down a bit. Maybe they become a bit too comfortable with the pricing. Some of them were probably burnt during the, uh, 0407 rally, but you know, they, they react as a herd generally anyway, and, and no one wants to be the first to jump out there with a price changing move. And uh, so I think there's perhaps false comfort there, which I think will help us again. When, when we do see the move come, but there's no there's no hurry, you know, there's no stampede for the for the signing of contracts. Uh, but once it starts in earnest, I think you may may see a touch of that. We're we're optimistic that we don't see uh, the same kind of rise we had in 04 to 07. You know, that sort of meteoric rise is 
is not sustainable as we as we saw. We'd we'd like to see a more controlled, more prolonged uh, you know cycle where that we've got ten to fifteen years of of steadily increasing prices and and a healthy industry where you know new mines can be developed. And quite frankly, that was one of the problems in the O four to O seven boom is you know there was outside of UR Energy there were very few new mines that came on. It, the cycle didn't last long enough for the capital to come in and actually develop mines. Uh, it was one of the things we had several of them moving forward at uh, Energy Metals and Uranium One has continued uh, working on them and and some of them are permitted now, ready to go, but uh, you know the market's not ready for them to go. So it'd be a much healthier market to see a, a gentler, more prolonged market. You know, we can reach those lofty levels. Let's just take a little bit longer to do it this time so we've got a, a more sustainable market. But traders, I, d- I don't have a good feel for traders. And uh, the uranium guys and, and the exploration and mining side, you know, I, I honestly don't know what they feel uh, on a global basis. But the ones I talked to in the U.S. I think are, are perhaps a bit over-optimistic on 232. But, you know, this goes back to the argument we started with is, is what's President Trump going to do on 232? And, you know, it's really anybody's guess. I guess, but I, I view the uh, the market as very cautious, uh, sitting on the fence. You know, they they were, I think, falsely expecting a an answer back in April when the uh, petition was filed. The deadline was uh, came in to put on his desk, not realizing that he had uh, you know 60 days or even longer if he extends it to review the petition. So I think the market's cooled off and everyone's just sitting and watching. I think that the market will probably have a pretty good reaction regardless of the action taken on 232 just to get the issue resolved. But you know, in terms of the uranium company execs, it's you know the guesses are I think. Uh, probably a little optimistic in my view. Okay. So uh, you and I talk about uh, swoop prices a lot, and we know it's an important issue for uranium investors. Could you please explain to our listeners what is SWOO and why is this so important? Well, it's a separative work unit. It's the three-letter acronym for separative work unit. And it, it essentially is when you're processing uranium ore and you're removing the fissionable uh, isotope, but it's a matter of how much energy you put into the separation process as to how much of that fissionable U-235 you actually get out of the ore. And if you put more energy in, you can get more out. And the less energy you put in, the less you're getting out. But obviously, the energy is a cost. It's a huge cost factor. And, uh, you know, if the price of uh, yellow cake is, is higher, then people will pay more to put more energy in to get a higher percentage recovery, if you will, out of, out of the uh, raw ore. If prices are low, then they'll go through a lot more of the ore, uh, resulting in higher tails. And by higher tails, what they mean is that the already processed ore has, uh, or, or yellow cake, uh, has uh, has got uh, a higher percentage of, of the U-235 in it than uh, if they put in more energy and recovered more of it. This not only is an immediate factor, but if you have a large, large inventory, and this became a factor in, in 06, 07, if you have a large inventory of tails that were only, uh, say, moderately uh, processed, resulting in high tail grades, then those tails can actually be reprocessed later as a, as a source of uranium without buying fresh fresh yellow cake. And they've also had had a lot of use in using those tails for down blending weapons grade, but that's a whole other a whole other story. Sure. So uh, moving on to um- uh, are your targets in Arizona affected by restrictions around the Grand Canyon? They, they are. Yeah, because uh, there are rumors that uh, President Trump is going to lift or at least partially lift the Arizona Strip mining ban. 
Uh, can you comment on it? I can. I think that for, first off, if, if he does lift the ban, we, we've been actively, one of the few things we've spent money on over the last two or three years is we've been actively lobbying in Washington for the partial lifting of the ban. Now, the ban basically encompasses uh, essentially everything south of Utah to uh, the interstate highway uh, that uh, south of the Grand Canyon. So it's not really mining in the Grand Canyon. Obviously, the Grand Canyon is protected by a national park, which already bans uranium mining. So there's a lot of misinformation out there and, and uh, incorrect semantics, which you know exacerbate the problem because it creates public hysteria when you think, oh, they're going to mine uranium in the Grand Canyon. Well, you know, I mean, quite frankly, I would be against that, but that's it's not even possible. Uh, so it's it's a bit of uh, smoke and mirrors in that regard. What is affected though is the on the north side, you've got uh, uh, the eastern third of it is a national forest. Uh, on the south side, it's it's mixed use land, some of the forest, uh, some of the BLM, and then on the northwest side, which is where most of our holdings are, uh, it's almost all BLM land. We don't see much chance of the ban getting lifted south of the Grand Canyon, although we're in favor of it, largely because that's where most of the tourists are, that's where most of the public perception and awareness is. Similarly, on the north, the part that's in the National Forest, probably less of an opportunity, but the northwest portion where, where we've got our holdings concentrated, we think there's a, a better, uh, much better chance of having it lifted just because it affects fewer and fewer people, and it's uh, further away from uh, the areas of concern. So we're, we're fortunate in that regard. Some of our holdings, we've got, I think, 15, 12 to 15 projects that are bonded and uh, permitted, although in a holding pattern because of the uh, ban the secretary imposed several years back. So we'd be very positively impacted. You know, we'd, we, we'd picked up the uh, Metamen, which were the former Quaterra holdings there. And they, this is where Gene Spearing comes involved as our advisor. He uh, and the Quaterra team developed some very uh, advanced methods uh, utilizing geophysics and identifying breccia pipes and had made huge discoveries Some of the most recent discoveries in the U.S. Uh, were, were made uh, through these methods before the ban was imposed. So, you know, we're right at the starting gate of a, of a major uh, series of discoveries there if the ban's lifted uh, and development of some of the resources that we have that were recently discovered. So it helped us immensely. Uh, we do have several state sections uh, that are not affected by the ban that uh, do have discoveries on them. And so we, we're actually kind of contemplating uh, the, the drilling of one of those uh, targets this year. Uh, we think it would be good to uh, demonstrate uh, the viability because, quite frankly, those breccia pipes are you know, the highest grade ore in the United States. You know, should we get, I think, the reason that there's some speculation that Trump may lift or partially lift this ban is tied directly to 232. If there is any significant 232 uh, relief coming or, or support coming for the industry, here again, this goes back to my comment that you can't immediately turn on the taps and suddenly produce 8 million pounds a year of uranium. And even then, there's a bottleneck in terms of production facilities. And you know, I'll be clear, we don't own any, um, but you know, we're certainly looking at uh, how, how to achieve that. And, you know, one of them is through toll milling. Uh, but the only way you can really make a big impact uh, quickly is with some higher grade ore. So that, you know, here again, you come circling back to the Arizona Strip and the breccia pipes, which is uh, you know, the highest grade ore in the U.S. So it makes sense that uh, if there is some 232 uh, relief coming, that uh, perhaps uh, in parallel with that, you'd also see the lifting of the ban on uh, highest grade newest discoveries in, in the U.S. So they, they may go hand in hand. And, and, you know, we're optimistic in that regard. Uh, but here again, we do have some, uh, I think, quite worthy projects that are not affected by the ban. 
So here again, either way we win. We we certainly don't win anywhere nearly as big uh, if the band stays in place, but uh, and then uh, a win nonetheless because we were able to pick that package up for for very little consideration during the past few years of uh, the doldrums in the market. Sure, sure. So Encore um, is based in the U.S. and uh, sort of well. You are based in the U.S. and so are the majority of our shareholders. Do you have any plans to do something with the over-the-counter security over there? No, timely question. Yeah, we're about halfway through the process of uh, listing on the OTCQ uh, QB, uh, which will transform into the QX at the right market cap and, and price level. But uh, by listing on the OTCB, we were able to you know, provide that uh, you know, blue sky coverage in the uh, U.S. marketplace uh, to, to our U.S. investors uh, so that they won't have to go through the uh, TSXV exchange. What's course relationship with uh, Energy Fuels? Well, Energy Fuels is our largest, uh, one of our largest shareholders. They aren't our largest shareholder, but they're a significant shareholder. We maintain good relations with them, certainly talk to them about toll milling. And I think, uh, you know, one of the keys here is they do have excess capacity for toll milling, made that quite clear to us. And it seems logical that they'd have a bit of favoritism towards a company that they have a big shareholding in. At the same time, uh, you know, they aren't going to hold uh, capacity back waiting on us. So we have to be prepared to move and and move quickly, which we are. A lot of it will be the first ones uh, that can get to their gate with, uh, you know, a steady, reliable source of, of ore. And certainly some preference will be given towards grade, I would think. But we we think we're in good position and we enjoy uh, having them as a, as a significant shareholder. Brilliant. And uh, what are the new developments in the uranium space? New kinds of technology, fuels, etc. My favorite is, you know, obviously the biggest issue with, in my opinion, of, of nuclear energy is the fear of the unknown and the fear of the meltdown and the, you know, the fear of Fukushima, et cetera. And granted, there have been some issues with that. And uh, certainly it wasn't a good experience by any means. But I think, um, you know, one of the one of the most promising new advances, and there's several of them, but the one that I'm really keen on is actually a company with our same name, uh, Encore Fuel Rods, which is uh, part of the old Westinghouse group. And they've actually invented a uh, system that uh, is meltdown proof. Uh, that is, the water pumps can fail, the thing can dry out, and it will not melt down. I think that's uh, perhaps in terms of public acceptance, uh, widespread acceptance of nuclear power plants, having one, uh, you know, in the town you live in. You know, if they were 100% certain that that thing couldn't melt down, they wouldn't worry about it. I think that is perhaps the most revolutionary advancement that's coming. And, you know, it's in commercial testing this year. Uh, and essentially, it's uh, you know one of those things where it's not rocket science. It just takes a little bit more time and effort to make the uh, the rods, the fuel rods, because they're ba basically uh, instead of uh, a typical fuel rod is a long pencil of of enriched uranium, uranium two thirty five. In, in a rod that's encased in, in a metal zirconium alloy tube. And the chain reaction of the uranium or the fissioning of the uranium occurs in all directions, but it's limited in an outward direction by those uh, by the zirconium, which absorbs some of the uh, radiation. But the, ra but the reaction's allowed to go on freely in between, up and down the core of this, if you will. And the new uh, fuel rod designs, uh, I'm trying to say this fairly simplistically, but the new fuel rod design actually compartmentalizes and has segments of 
much smaller, perhaps an inch-long segment of the fuel rod that's got uh, the same metal cladding in between. And they're using new and more advanced uh, alloys that uh, that limit the uh, absorb the heat better and, and limit the meltdown potential. And they're experimenting with even uh, further adi- additional alloys uh, for the next generation. But it's quite quite a promising technology. Uh, you can uh, any of the listeners that uh, have an interest can go and uh, just uh, Google Encore fuel rods or Westinghouse fuel rods, and I suspect they'll uh, come up with uh, lots of information on it. But I find that very promising. Brilliant, brilliant. Phil, uh, you mentioned uh, in the beginning that when Fukushima happened, you alerted everyone that the market would be dead for the next five years at least. It was a great call and, and one that again set you apart from the rest of the crowd. So in your opinion, what would be the biggest risk for investors in the uranium space right now? Time. Um, you know, I think timing is is the, I guess, the enemy of investors in all, all markets, really, but uh, maybe more so in uranium because, uh, you know, it, it is impossible to predict the exact timing of, of when this is going to happen. And, you know, if you're right within a year, then that may be adequate, but for some companies, so that year may be uh, more than they can finance. Um, you know, if, if the move that I talk about in uranium comes in three or four years instead of two years, then investor fatigue will grow in. These companies can't, uh, can't afford to finance themselves, et cetera, et cetera. I think the biggest thing that you don't know is the timing. And while we've, you know, certainly got very, very talented and experienced people and, you know, there's a lot behind, it's more than a guess when we think the uranium price is going to change, but there is no way of pinpointing exactly when or exactly how much it's going to change when it changes. Uh, and I think that's probably the biggest risk because the uranium's there, the personnel are there, um, you know, the extraction means are there, the Everything you need is there except the price. And so while we know that uh, ultimately it's going to go up, that's the biggest single factor. And I guess that's why I feel for the first time in years comfortable in saying that, you know, we, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train. You know, I, I think we're there. And I that's one of the things we've done with Encore is make sure that we've got, in fact, we just did a raise here not too long ago, which gives us the uh, runway to make sure we're in business uh, long enough to uh, to enjoy the uh, what we view as an inevitable price rise. I think it's going to come sooner than later this time. So it was a little difficult to take uh, the money this time, but uh, our view is b- to be better safe than sorry. And, and also to be cashed up in the event that uh, there are any distressed asset sales that come along. You know, we, we always uh, look at everything we can see, whether it's uh, apparently too big for a company our size or not. You know, it doesn't mean that we won't take a look at it and maybe try to get either a piece of it or partner up with somebody. But we pretty much built energy metals on mergers and acquisitions in addition to, uh, you know, large efforts of claim staking and acquisitions of our own properties. And, uh, you know, to a large degree, we're, we're following the same recipe here. I think the one key is to really prevail in a long-term uranium cycle and to prosper, you have to gain a certain size and pardon the pun, but critical mass. You, you have to have critical mass. And, you know, the generic growth alone uh, is very difficult to achieve that. And that's why, you know, we've made, well, fairly small, we've made a couple of mergers along the way uh, with Encore so far. And I, I think, you know, we'd be certainly looking to do uh, more of that going down the road. Great. That's great. Bill, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. No, thanks, Marcelo. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. 
The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.